I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew 22 or in your bulletin to page 5. This is a passage of Scripture um, that falls in Matthew's, in the the synoptic Gospels where um, Jesus has several conversations with three different types of groups of people. And all of them are different. But um, they're all trying to figure out who Jesus is and what he's about and what his kingdom is about. And uh, Jesus has these incredible arguments with them. And this is one with the Sadducees. It comes from Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 23. Follow along if you will. That same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died since he had no children. He left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You're in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. This is God's word. Jesus comes to people in a way that is absolutely upside down. That you have to come to Jesus on his terms. You have to come to him as he is. Not, but everybody wants to come to Jesus through their own filter, through their own terms. You know, I mean, scientists for a larger part than they have not thought this, thought that the sun was the center, I mean, the earth was the center of our solar system. And that everything, you know, in the world is revolved around the earth. And so, you know, they interpreted and made science uh, work off that paradigm until they had, you know, uh, what's been coined a paradigm shift. They realized that the earth is not the center of the solar system. The sun is the center of the solar system. And when they had that incredible paradigm shift, you know, science and everything got turned upside down. And they began to discover and make all sorts of scientific calculations that they never would have made. When you come to Jesus, look, you have to have a paradigm shift. You have to step... I mean, it, you will never make sense of Jesus on your terms, through your grid. Until you have this paradigm shift, you will just argue with him and he will make no sense and have no meaning for you. And that's what's going on in these conversations. Is a bunch of people trying to filter Jesus through this and refusing to kind of go through this paradigm shift. But in the amazing thing, when Jesus argues with them, he doesn't give in, he, and, but he teaches us so much about who he is and about what he came to do. Because all of us, you know, do not understand how unique Jesus is. I mean, he comes and ha- answers these questions in ways that are absolutely off the map. He, he answers them in ways that don't even ask. Everybody here thinks Christianity is like something. I mean, you, you think Christianity is like blank. It's like a bunch of you know, really moral people who have their life together. Or it's a bunch of really liberal, um, you know, revolutionists. Or it's a bunch of angry Republicans. Or it's a bunch of, like, war... I mean, everybody thinks Christianity is like something. You know, it's like those people who hurt me when I was a kid. Or it's like those people who would not befriend me when I was a kid. Or it's like those people who treated me harsh when I was going through suffering. 
Or just like those people who hated my next door neighbor who just wanted somebody to love them. Everybody thinks Christianity is like something. But what you get in these arguments is that Jesus is not like anything. And it comes in two ways. In the form of a question and then his, this, his amazing answer to that. So I want to look for, with you at the question and then Jesus' response to it. Well, first the question. Who's asking it? It's the Sadducees. It says in verse 23, That same day the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Well, who are the Sadducees? The Sadducees were one of the few um, sects of Judaism that kind of broke up uh, before the first century and lived under the Roman Empire. But they were kind of the upper class aristocracy. They were the ones who kind of fit into the upper class of the culture and had money and kind of had wealth and had all sorts of influence. So one thing it says about them in, in verse 23, it says they say there is no resurrection. That the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. And it wasn't so much of a, like a theological calculation for them as it was a political adaptation. That for them, the Sadducees uh, had this incredible status in the community and in the Roman Empire. And so they wanted to make decisions and have beliefs that did not threaten that. And the resurrection was a very threatening belief in Roman culture because anybody who believed it could just basically look at authority and go, you know, I don't care what you do. You know, I'll, I, you know, if you say you're going to kill me, who cares? There's a resurrection. So anybody who believed in that was a huge threat and they would just you know, want to exclude them, suppress them, never let them have influence in the society because there was an incredible danger to those people who believed it because they'd risk anything. So the Sadducees said, we don't believe in a resurrection. And really, you know, what, you, what we learn here immediately is how much comfort and safety influence our lives. You know, because we're in a modern world and, and, and you know, scientifically influenced, all of us, you know, you, you think you make decisions this way. You come and you read information and you look at the objective stuff and you go, here's the pros, here's the cons. Um, I'm going to make this decision pretty neutrally and objectively because I'm a smart individual. But that's not how we make decisions. I mean, this is how most of our decisions are made. We form beliefs and we form values based on safety and comfort. Like, think about this. How many decisions do you make for, you know, yourself based on safety and comfort? I mean, you make simple ones, like I'm not going to drive my car 180 miles an hour in and out of traffic, you know, jumping bridges because of safety and comfort. But think about in more mundane ways, like with your children or with your job or how you talk to your neighbors or how you come across to people. How much does safety and comfort drive what you actually believe is true and what you, always be, what you believe is the way people ought to interact and the way people ought to just be in the world. We all do this. So don't read the Sadducees and think, you know, those are just immature first century people. All of us are making decisions and belief and questioning Jesus on things that we don't want to adapt and adopt because we want to make decisions and have beliefs on safety and concern. So the Sadducees come with this question about the resurrection because they don't want it to be true. And they ask him this idea, Jesus, okay, if a woman's married to this man and he dies, you know, by your law, um, her, his brother is supposed to marry her. What if he dies and his brother marries her? What if he dies and his brother marries her? When he dies and his brother marries her. And it goes down to seven. And so she's had seven you know, husbands and uh, they were all brothers, you know. But he says, like, this is actually, you know, 
this is levirate marriage. It comes from Deuteronomy 25. That this was the law. You know, for a woman in this culture, if, if you did not have your seed um, carry on through a, the birth of a child, you just had no identity. You had no life. And so this is a really merciful law that was instituted by Moses, where if, if a woman dies, mean, excuse me, or her husband dies, it's by law her husband is to come, or excuse me, her brother-in-law is to come and to marry her and to do that for her. So they come and say, Jesus, you know, this woman, she has seven of them, hypothetical. Who's going to be her husband at the resurrection? Um, it, it's a pretty hard question. It's a pretty difficult situation. Well, why do they ask it? Well, because... Um, they want to see, one, they, they want to make the resu- res- resurrection look stupid. But they want to know, is Jesus on board with us? Is he someone we can kind of get on board with? Because if you go back and you read the previous passage, Jesus has an argument with the Pharisees. And I'll get into this in a minute. But they, the Pharisees and Sadducees hated each other. So it's kind of this idea, if he hates them, well, maybe he likes us. And maybe we can get on board with him. So they ask, they, they want to set this question up. To say, hey, Jesus, are you about, you know, can you fit into our agenda? Are you someone that we can get excited about? But they set him up in the form of a trap. I mean, I want you to see what, what a difficult situation Jesus is in here. Because they ask him this question, and if he answers it, well, you know, the first one. No, wait, the second one. I changed my mind the third one. No, maybe it is the first one. He's just going to look stupid. And he's going to, you know, the resurrection will look stupid. And it will not look believable. It will not look plausible. And nobody listening to him will think Jesus is worth a teacher worth listening to. I mean, it, but if he goes, um, oh, wow, good question. Uh, I don't know. Um, you know what? The resurrection does sound stupid. Then he, he denies everything he's ever taught. He loses his entire ministry. He loses everyone who has begun to follow him. I mean, he's in, a, he's in a real tough situation where it looks like he's got no way out. I mean, the Sadducees feel like they've trapped him. So how does he answer it? Well, he gives an amazing response. Look down in verse 30, 33, will you? It says this, When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And I, I know when you get an immediate read of that, you're probably not blown away and astonished. But what they heard here was completely off the map. I mean, Jesus doesn't go, well, it's not A, it's B. Or it's not B, it's A. He doesn't say an answer that they expect. He gives them something completely different. So what does he say? A couple things. First, if you look at the text in verse 29, he says, You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Okay, that phrase, you are in error. In the Greek, it literally says, no. First of all, it just says, Jesus said, they go, Jesus, you know, who's her husband going to be? Is it going to be this one? You know, who's going to be married to her at resurrection? And Jesus just goes, no. I mean, <laughs> that makes no sense almost. No. So why does he say this? Well, what, think about what the Sadducees are trying to do. They, they want to know, are you with us? Are you on board with us? Because we know you're not with the Pharisees because you've just separated yourself from them. If you read Acts, the book of Acts, Acts 23.8 says this, The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. The Pharisees and Sadducees are enormous enemies. They hate each other. They, they, they do not have anything in common. They do not see eye to eye on anything, theologically, politically, socially, economically. 
And so the Sadducees are kind of using that, um, that logic that goes, you know, the enemy of my enemy is, might be my friend. So they know that Jesus is the enemy of the Pharisees, but is he the enemy of us? And Jesus just goes, no. No. What do we learn here? Jesus is not like anything. He doesn't fit in anybody's category. He's not like the Pharisees. He's not like the Sadducees. You see, the problem with their question is that they come with this premise. Here's what we know to be true about the world. Here's what we like about the world. Here's the way we want our lives to be. Jesus, do you fit into this category? And Jesus goes, no. I'm not like you, and I'm not like you, and I'm not like you. You see, you you have to realize about yourself that you and I are always wanting to build and construct a Jesus that already fits in life for us. And we, we have a set direction about the way we want life to be, the way we want the world to be. And we have values that we adopt for that. We go, you know, this is the three or four most important things that I ought to live by and that you ought to live by, that my children will live by. And, you know, the people who adopt those things are in and the people who don't adopt those things are out. Um, The people who agree with you are your good friends. The people who don't agree with you are your enemies in the culture. You know, and we'll make every decision about that and we'll go after that. And we think, Jesus, surely you fit in one of these lists. Surely you connect in one of these two ways. And Jesus goes, no. I'm not like you, and I'm not like you, and I'm not like you, and I'm not like you. I am completely different, and my kingdom is completely upside down from everything that you think it is. And until you get that, you'll never get Jesus. Think about it this way. Where does Jesus offend you? Does Jesus offend you? Say you've been a Christian, you know, a year or 10 years, or 20 years. It's even harder for you if you've been a Christian for a long time. Does Jesus offend you? Because if he doesn't, that's a huge problem. Look, in the Gospels, Jesus offended everybody. Everybody. I mean, this kind of political group, this kind of political group, this kind of political group, they all didn't get him. They all were offended by him. If Jesus doesn't offend you, do you know what this means? That you've made up a Jesus that works for you. Because the real Jesus will offend you and press you and can critique you in some way or another. And this is kind of scary. Look, if we're a church that thinks Jesus approves of all of our views across the culture, the way we view worship, the way we view Sunday school, the way we view small groups, the way we view relationships, the way we ought to relate to our community, the way our community ought to be, the way, you know, how involved we should be, who we should have fellowship with, how we connect. If we think Jesus 100% approves of everything we do and doesn't critique us, I'm telling you, we've got a made-up Jesus. And we will quickly be bored with him. I mean, how boring is it to be in a relationship with somebody who just goes yes to everything you do and everything you think? And that's not an exciting relationship. It's not a real relationship. I mean, part, part of the reason my marriage is so awesome is because my wife and I fight all the time. <laughs> I mean, we have a real relationship. You know, it's not like we're a bunch of robots. Look, Jesus has got to press you on something. If he doesn't, I'm telling you, you're avoiding something. You're choosing to neglect some part of Jesus. 
all through the Gospels, he's offending and he's pressing everybody. I mean, at one point he goes to the, the religious people, look, you don't get the kingdom. All the prostitutes, the drunks, all these tax collectors, they get the kingdom, not you. And so you think, oh, Jesus, you let sinners do what they want to do. You must like sinners. Jesus turns to the, to the drunks and the prostitutes and the tax collectors and goes, by the way, repent. Stop. I mean, and they just go, who do you like? Who are you with? He goes, nobody. I'm not like anybody. And until you get that, I'm telling you, we don't get Jesus. He's just made up to us. And so Jesus comes and goes, no. I'm not like you, and I'm not like you. I'm completely different. But then he tells us this. He says, first of all, no. Second of all, you don't know the Scriptures. Pretty interesting phrase. He says to the the Sadducees, look, you believe part of the Bible. And the Sadducees did. They were a, a group of people who believed in the Pentateuch. That is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They, uh, they actually thought that was inspired scripture. They thought that that was authoritative and you, whatever it said you had to listen to and that God wrote that. Um, but the prophets, the Psalms and stuff, they did not believe that. They did not adopt that. But they did adopt uh, the book of Exodus. And so what Jesus does is he says, you know, you don't think there's a resurrection? Um, look at Exodus 3. God says this, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, first of all, you notice this about Jesus. He doesn't quote a psalm. Like, he could quote Psalm 16 here. He could, you know, say all sorts of things. He argues on their terms. You, you want to convince someone of Christianity, you've got to enter their terms. You've got to step on their life, on their territory. You can't expect people just to come over to your world and go, oh yeah, I'll adopt all your presuppositions and believe everything you can in order to hear your argument. You've got to step on their terms. Because what Jesus does is, okay, let's argue. You want to talk about this? You believe in Exodus. Well, you know what God says about himself in Exodus. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Why does he say that? Why does he quote this verse? Because what Jesus is teaching is covenantal personal relationship. That... The God of the Bible is this kind of God. He always comes in the form of covenant. What covenant is, is it is a binding relational contract. That God always comes and says, you will be mine. It's not, um, you'll be mine for a little while or we'll be you know, relational for this time. He says, you will be mine. It's permanent. That once you get to know God, He is a covenantal God, which means it begins and it never ends. It never stops. But not only that, it's personal. You know, He doesn't just say here, I'm the God of Israel. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That this is a God who Jesus says, you don't just know about Him, you know Him. You know, because of technology today, tons of us know uh, bizarre details about celebrities. Um, maybe some of you more than others in disturbing ways. But, you know, we're able to, like, follow all of these people and know things about their lives and know, you know, details that they do on the weekends. But do you call them? Do they call you? Do you email them? Do they text you? Do whatever back and forth to you? I mean, we're in a culture where we know tons about people, but how many people do you know? 
Lots of people in culture go, yeah, I believe in God. And what we mean is, I know about, I know there is a God. I know God. I know that God exists. But what Jesus is saying is, look, the God of the Bible is not someone you just know about. It's someone you know. It's someone you know personally and covenantally. And it never ends. And what Jesus is basically saying is, look, you get to know this God, and he makes you last forever. It will never end. You know him, and it will, it, there will, it, you will enter into this relationship, and it will never be, I used to be the God of Oakwood Church. I remember that time. That was a good time. It is, I am the living God of Oakwood Presbyterian Church. And it will never end. That's what Jesus is saying. You get to know him through this people. It's permanent. It lasts forever. You know, the, remember the old, like... Um, well, old. Uh, that hellfire kind of preaching mode. Um, some people do this still on the steps of Penn State. Um, but people preach this way. You know there's going to be an afterlife. And there's going to be hell, right? And it's going to be really bad. It's going to be terrible. Therefore, you need to get a relationship with God. Because you know there's going to be an afterlife. Therefore, get a relationship with God. Isn't that how we all kind of heard it first? But listen, what is Jesus' logic here? It's not... You know there's an afterlife. Get a relationship with God. He goes, you get to know God, you know there's an afterlife. You know them, you know it never ends. And you'll never question it because knowing this God is something that cannot end because it's incredibly permanent. And I became real and I became alive and it was new. You see the difference between that? And so Jesus comes and says, Sadducees, you don't know the scriptures. But only that, he says, he says this, you don't know the power of God. Now, what does he mean there? Well, he's teaching us that resurrection is not recitation, it's transformation. That um, part of the doubt of the resurrection is that uh, we have no idea what it will be like. And it's a very natural thing to be skeptical for and to be almost kind of turned off or bored to. But what Jesus says is, look, you doubt this, it's because you don't know the power of it. And then he it kind of poses the question, um, you know, in light of their question, Jesus, who will her husband be? He says, nobody. Which means nobody, none of you will be married in heaven. Now, when I first read that verse, that was like the most depressing thing I'd ever read in the Bible. Because it sounds like in heaven, we'll all just be pals. <laughs> Yay. I mean, hey, become a Christian. We'll be friends forever. How, how lame does that sound? But that's not what Jesus is saying here. And it can't be what he means. Because when he says in verse 30, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. It can't be a boring, reductionistic view of relational intimacy. It can't be that heaven is less intense than earth. Because of what he says in verse 29. In verse 29, he says, you don't know the power of God. He says, look, heaven is a place that is far, far beyond the riches of marital love. It's deeper than that. It's everything you want it to be. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, most people, if they had really learned to look in their own hearts would know that they, they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. 
There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what we would ordinarily call unsuccessful marriage or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking about the best possible ones. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's exactly what Jesus is arguing here. If you don't think relationships point beyond this world and what you long for them, he says, you don't know the power of God. Do you know why you will not, no one will be given in marriage at the resurrection? Because at the resurrection, you will be married to Jesus permanently, forever. And it will be everything that you long for your marriage to be right now. I mean, all of us who are married have some sort of gap in intimacy or commitment or unity or friendship or ways we just don't get each other that you just go, I wish this would just get, we would just get past this. What Jesus is saying is you will at the resurrection. This means, look, all of your relationships, friendships, parent-child, siblings, um, marriages, they're all shadows. They're all pointing beyond this world to something greater, deeper, more rich. A couple years ago, I had a girl who um, was converted through RUF. And uh, when I would talk to her about the gospel and talk to her about struggles and things that would kind of kept her from, uh, from believing. She, she was like, I, started, I really think Jesus rose from the grave. I'm starting to realize that the Bible is true and that grace makes sense. But the hardest thing for her was she realized that um, when the, this is what the gospel is and this is what it means to believe and profess faith. My mom died when she was 12. Or when I, when I, she said, when I was 12. And she said, um, she didn't believe this. She didn't know this. And I don't know if I want to go spend eternity from, without my mom. And I looked at her and I said, I know this makes no sense to you right now. I, 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 I know this is weird. I promise you, when you're resurrected and you're in the presence of God, you will not care. Because everything that you want your mom to be will be true. In Jesus. Everything you wish your parents said to you, the living God will look at you and go, you are my son and my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And you just won't even care. Friends, siblings, children. It's so weird. You will not care. Do you know why that is? Because of the power of God. That's that's Jesus' argument. Do you know that? Do you realize why they were astonished? And they go, wow. If that's hard for you to kind of figure out and realize that, listen, everything is going to be resurrected. Everything sad is going to become untrue. Everything rich will be given to you in Christ that you long for. If you go, I'm not sure how to think about this. I don't know how to accept that. Listen, the logic goes like this. It's not... 
Figure all that out. Figure out if there's a resurrection. And then know God. Jesus' logic is this. Know God through me. It's a free offer. Take it and you will be convinced there is a resurrection and that there is left life and there is real life and it will last forever. Know me. Tim Keller puts this so well. He says, all of us come, you know, wondering what to do with Jesus and we want some sort of like watertight argument that will go, yes, now I'm convinced. But Keller says, like, the Bible does not give you a watertight argument. It gives you a watertight person against whom there is no argument. The crowds heard that. Do you? The beautiful thing is you hear their argument and it's gospel. It's a free offer. Take him. He's the king. He will resurrect it. And one day in Christ, you will be given him in marriage. Let me pray for you. Father, help us to believe that. Help us to handle your arguments with care that we can realize that you are a loving Father, a caring Savior, one who comes to save, redeem, and love. In Christ's name, amen.